as an Italian American, I'm proud to say that uh, I do have some things about me that are somewhat cliche. And uh, yeah, again, I'm, I'm pretty proud of that. Uh, us Italian Americans tend to be very proud of the fact that we are Italian. It's almost like being somebody in CrossFit. Like, how do you know somebody does CrossFit? They will tell you. How do you know someone is Italian? They'll tell you. Or if they don't, certainly their hands will. You're probably not going to be surprised when I tell you this, but a big switch for my narrator voice, my ability to host a podcast, it came two years ago when I decided that I would lean closer to the microphone and free up my hands. I'm no longer afraid of my hands whacking the microphone, but I do wave them frantically as I talk. Anyways, I have many cliche things about me as an Italian, but one of the things I will not compromise on is what makes great Italian food. Now, you might be thinking of something like melted mozzarella cheese, or as my family and I call it, mozzarella. You might be thinking of a lot of red sauce, marinara sauce, or as lots of my friends growing up called it, gravy. But actually, what makes great Italian food is a few simple but fresh ingredients used in different ways. Little wrinkles constantly applied to what seems like a very small and constrained list of stuff that you actually use in your cooking. That's what makes Italian food so unbelievable, at least when you're in Italy. Because in Italy, Italian food is so much more than what we get in the US. Insert any country there, really. Today, I wanted to talk to one of the country's best Italian chefs, running one of the most exciting and up-and-coming restaurants in, in my opinion, the world, but certainly in the US, because not only does he live out that value of taking a few simple ingredients and just adding new wrinkles all the time, as a chef, he has to care about the consistent creativity and quality behind his work. Exactly the subject we're exploring all year long. What does it take to be consistently innovative with the work you do? Especially given the fact that sometimes you're just forced to do the same thing over and over and over again, whether you create work for another business or food for your patrons. It's tasty, it's fresh, it's mwah. It's unthinkable. Stories of conventional thinking at work and the people who dare to question it. I'm Jay Akunzo, and in this episode, we're doing another creative cafe. We haven't done one of these in a while, but this is where we kind of pull back from all the production flourishes that usually define this show, and we just have a deep and cathartic conversation with somebody about the nitty-gritty of the created work. This kind of conversation that makers of anything typically have over drinks, but rarely want to say publicly for fear of defining themselves as an artist that has no place in business. I think that's a folly. I think that's a misunderstanding of what art actually is. Anyways, these are those brutally honest, cathartic conversations, the Creative Cafe series. So without further ado, let's step into the cafe. Today, we're talking to Mike Lombardi. Mike is actually a former high school buddy of mine who created SRV, Serene Republic of Venice, in Boston. It is not your typical Italian food. In place of all that mozzarella and marinara or gravy, you have things like cicchetti, which are basically tapas with lots of vegetables and fish and crunchy breads. Tapas, but from northern Italy. I remember being a student studying abroad, and we spent a weekend in Venice, and after watching the last gondola maker who still makes gondolas by hand in that city, this magical moment, magical experience, we turned around, walked into a bar, ordered a nice chilled glass of white wine, and in front of us they placed this platter of cicchetti. Little bits of fish and cracker and meat and cheese and vegetable. And it was like just eating an amazing experience, eating the culture. Mike brought that idea to Boston, which is a city that, yes, has a lot of great food, but kind of keeps it pretty close to home. We talked a lot about his influences, about making this restaurant, about winning awards as a first-time owner of a restaurant, first-time head chef at his restaurant. Congratulations to Mike. And we also talked a lot about how creating the concept of a restaurant, the menu, the dishes, changing everything, the front and the back of the house, all of these things about Mike's work have a real application in ours. Let's hear from Mike. 
the idea that I wanted to open a restaurant probably began or definitely began in college, in the beginning of college. I was studying entrepreneurship. I wanted to be in business. I wanted to do something that I loved every day that didn't feel like a job. I had never worked in a restaurant, but had for some reason picked that it was like a high energy place that I just liked being in, you know, just like you're with your friends or your family and a lot of celebrating in life happens in restaurants. And I started looking at it then as kind of exactly the way that you just lined it out. There's the everyday grind of the business that can be fun. Um, but then there's the overarching kind of less occurring big creative moments, which are con concept and generation. And um, like, what is this? What is this restaurant as a whole? And I kind of started that process first. I had notebooks where I would write like crazy ideas that I would never do anymore. One, because maybe they were a little immature in their thinking, but two, maybe they were unrealistic in their thinking as well. And then as I got more into the restaurant business from a front of house point of view, I eventually wanted to learn how to cook. And so I got into the back of house. And when I was cooking, I felt satisfied every day. And also it's something that I've just done with my family a lot as well. So yeah, so I think it started in, in college and then I worked my way back into all the little details of it. And then I met Kevin 10, 10 plus years ago now in Italy when we were cooking together. And that's when we started experiencing all the different styles of Italian cooking and Italian eating that there really are. That's not just like the Italian American version of what I've experienced my whole life. Was there something out in Italy that you and Kevin experienced together where you were like shown this different style? Because like you said, where we grew up, it was very like not one note. There's like subtle differences between the dishes and the restaurants, but like it's pretty limiting in like the the types of flavors and ingredients. And then like the the stuff that I see out of SRV is so radically different. Like was there any story you can share or moment that you and Kevin like when you were traveling, you were kind of shown a different way? I think Kevin and I always say when we tell people food tastes better in Italy because you're in Italy, not necessarily because it's like a better carrot. It's just a carrot in Italy. When you are traveling and you're, and you're on the beach in Amalfi, having a bowl of pasta with seafood in it, it's like, it's an experience no matter if that's the best bowl of pasta you've had or not. And I think being able to, to, experience the culture and the aesthetic and eat it at the same time is a different like sensory experience and that's what kind of tuned me into like okay this is an experience i have to share with someone like you know and that doesn't mean that every southern italian restaurant that you make has to be on a beach but it's like it has to be light it has to be airy it kind of defines the whole space you know it has to be even if you're in the middle of winter in boston you have to feel like there's something you know, there, there needs to be plants in the room. It needs to feel like there's more to it than just a building with plates in front of you, you know? Um, so there was a direct line you can draw basically from the experiential eating, so to speak, of Italy to what you guys envisioned and, and set up at SRV. restaurant, exactly. Got it. What are some of the elements that you see coming through in the restaurant today? So you mentioned the plants on the wall. Like that's the, one of the first things I always notice. Are there other things that you think are like experiential that tried to mimic what you felt out there? So, um, Dennis, you know, so yeah, so when we opened the restaurant, we went for Venice. Everything is a mix between, um, creativity and then like economics, right? I mean, that's really what the, what business kind of is. And so we knew we have a bunch of concepts. So it's everything from Italian American cuisine to Southern Italian seafood to trattoria in Bologna to Roman street food. And then there's this idea of like Venetian food, which no one really knows what that is here. And, but everyone knows what Barcelona tapas food is. And so that's kind of where we jumped off from because the Venetian culture is very similar to the, the Barcelona tapas culture. And that has been a huge thing in America for so long now where it's like you can have a, a Japanese tapas restaurant here, which is not even a thing, but people just understand tapas so well that we were like, okay, we can definitely make a jump of a connection from this word called tapas to this world called this word called chiquetti. And so we went to Venice and that's why we did Venetian food. There was, it's nothing really more than that, to be honest with you. Um, and the fact that Kevin and I are passionate about all the elements of Italian food that you could convince us to do any sort of Italian restaurant that celebrates any region because we think, we think they're all special. Um, so this just clicked for this space and this neighborhood and this timing as far as like, if we were going to make a statement, let's make a statement about something that people can already relate to. I love the 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 middle section that separates the bar from the 
dining area where if my memory serves, there's like ropes hanging down, which like totally brings me back to walking along the canals and like seeing all the like old fishnets that people have, like part of which is decoration now for tourists out there. But a lot of it is just like it speaks to the heritage that this this city, this area is so waterlogged and also dependent on the fishing industry in a way that like you forget that Italy is surrounded by all this water because it's such a thin country and you start thinking about uh, you think about wine, you think about tomato, you think about cheese. And then it's like, oh, right, there's a huge, huge amount of seafood in that country and in, in Venice in particular. Definitely. And then we wanted to do, we wanted to be modern. We wanted to like, I guess, like to go back to your kind of original idea. It's like our restaurant is the evolution of an idea. It's the evolution of an, of, of an idea of culture. You know, it's like what would if you could remake Venice in 2019, what would that look like? You know, um, we didn't want to remake Venice in 1400. So that's kind of where we went with it. Any other like favorite moments in Venice? Like what I, I'm one of the things that I forgot about, like you kind of uncovered this memory for me. I was actually, so when I studied abroad in Rome in college, I, I remember like they toured us around the whole program I was with. It's like 70 kids. God bless the three directors who decided to take 70 college students around Italy. But like I, we, we were, we were touring around Venice and we stopped to watch the last remaining gondola maker. And I hope he's still there. But this was back in like 2007. So who knows? Like the last remaining gondola maker in the actual city. Like a lot of them had either moved out or closed shop. And then we turned around and a few of us wandered into this bar. And we walk up to the bar to try and like order some wine. And before we could get our order in, they placed a little plate in front of us of like really crunchy rounds of bread with like just a dollop of cold fish on top and maybe a sprig of something green. And it was like, amazing and to your point it was like because we were in italy yeah you just watch something you just watch something happen you just watch this like you were just looking at a gondola and you turn around and now you're having a snack and you your body has just like connected all those moments into this one emotion how, so how do you like is there it must be a balance of like and this is where maybe the creativity comes in like you want to represent that but still somehow make it your own how how does that process unfold where you're not just like, how do we mimic exactly what I experienced in Italy here? You said like, you want to make it modern. You want to rethink it in 2019. Like, how do you represent something that you're proud of and, and represent something historical well, while still making it modern and relevant? So I think first you have to under, well, not, not a hundred percent of the time, but the way that we try to approach it is to understand the history. So it's like, why is that? Why is that dish in Venice? Why have they been eating that for years? You know, like what is so special about it? What about the flavors work together? Like, I guess if you were painting, there's certain colors that clash, right? And so it's like, why does that clash? Why do these two colors look good together? And then maybe you try to push the envelope and saying, okay, like these two things shouldn't work together. But if I do it in this way, I can make them work together, which will be a new experience for somebody. You know, I know that's kind of hard to explain, but that's pretty much what it is. It's like, okay, this is good because it's like salty and sweet, like prosciutto and melon, which is not Venetian, is salty and sweet, right? Oh, if I don't want to do prosciutto and melon, it could be something as simple as kiwis are grown in around Venice. Really? Yeah. They're grown at a higher rate. It's the number two country for production of kiwis in the world. I never would have guessed that. Yeah, exactly. So it's like you have something like prosciutto and melon and then you have something like speck, which is a smoked prosciutto from the region. So we've done dishes with like speck and kiwi, which is like not super creative, but kind of creative in its own sense. It's like we're recreating that like sweet, salty bite with a little bit of smoke, but bringing it a sense of place, which is around Venice. So it's just like a connection of a lot of different dots that you've seen before, but maybe haven't connected in the same way, you know? Right, right. So talk me through all the parts and pieces that go into starting a restaurant. Cause I think there, there's some obvious ones that we don't have to touch on. It's like, you know, finding real estate and uh, you know, uh, hiring a staff and all those things that I think people would readily assume happens. What I'm curious to know is like, how does the funding of a restaurant come together and how does the, like, how does the concept work? And like, also what are the, what's the order of operations there? So it's actually a circle, which is the most frustrating part of it. <laughs> So we don't really deal with a lot of – we don't deal with investors at all. Um, my business partner does everything himself and then I had to get my own – I had to get my own investor. But we never got like – a lot of restaurants will sell equity or do some sort of flip, crazy flip deal where like there's a, it's an investor pool 
they spend a bunch of money and they get their money back and then the ownership changes hands as the time evolves, like on a scale. But long story short, you get the real estate and then you, we find real estate, then find concepts. We always just have this like log of things that we're passionate about um, just because it has to fit into the neighborhood. It doesn't make sense to open up the exact same restaurant next to, you know, even if you could do it better, like you don't open a French bistro next to a French bistro in a city like Boston that's so small when you could have a completely different you know, experience next door. Um, so we have like a bunch of concepts ready to go. And then unfortunately, like I said, it's a circle. So you start planning it. And as you're planning it, you're trying to convince people that it's a good idea at the same time, but you have to have the real estate because from an investor point of view, all they really care about is like, do you have good real estate? Um, because that to them is what's going to drive traffic, even if you're talented. So you get the real estate, then you put the concept in the space and then you're, you're shopping that concept for money using the real estate as like your leveraging ground of like, well, look at how this great location that I have. Uh, and then you have to, and then you look at the space from um, a flow point of view. How many people can I, how many people can I fit in this room? How many chairs can I get in here to maximize profit? Where do, if I have this many chairs, where do I need my servers to have glassware to be able to put glasses on the table without having to go, across the whole restaurant every time they need to get one new glass because that's going to slow down my service. So you kind of start to solve those problems. Um, and simultaneously, the chefs are writing menus. And um, the menus have to fit not only the concept, but the style of service that you're looking for. Does everyone get their own plate of food? Is it a shared plate restaurant? How many times are you, how many courses is it going to be? Is it a one, is it a three course meal? Is it a five course meal? Is it a 20 course tasting menu with individual bites? How many times are we going to reset the silverware in between? So, you know, you, then you start to ask those questions and then those questions start to dictate like where things go and how you write the menu so that it meets all those numbers of courses that you need it to be. So it's just like this big never ending. Wow. Yeah. It's the, it's the most fun part of the whole thing. Why? Because it's just all this, all this unknown and there's no book for it. There's no like, well, if you have this space, this is what you should do. I mean, there's experience, but you know, if, if SRV was a plated food restaurant where everyone got their own plate of food and it wasn't shared food and we would have to design the kitchen completely differently than the way we did. So it's like everything affects everything else, which is why when you go out to eat and you, and you're a diner and it's not a big deal to be like, Oh, well, can't I, can't we just do this? And it's like, we could physically do that for your table, but it, it might bend or break the system to the point where it's going to affect so many other diners that we're going to be in a bad position as a restaurant. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's almost like uh, the expectations that people have coming from other types of restaurants, you have to be aware of. It's like, it's so, which is sounds like such a beast of a task because it's like you have so much going on in just your own little bubble, in your own little world, in your own business. I say little, it's not, it's far from little, but there's just so much going on. But like, it's such a finite, narrow view of like, this is what we're doing and all the parts and pieces and the amount of effort and stress that goes into it. And then you have to factor in, oh, right, people are arriving and they're hearing things like Italian and they have certain expectations. They're hearing things or they know things about the Boston scene, perhaps, because they're locals and you're changing their expectations of that. And then there's just like the way you're plating and serving the food. And they have so like, you know, I think I, I see a lot of there's a lot of tendency. We talked about this a while ago, actually, over coffee. It's like Boston tends to retreat to the same like gastro pubby safe yeah. American cuisine. Right. And I think there's a lot of reasons why I think maybe some people it's because that's sort of what people expect. Right. So when someone walks in with all those preconceived notions, how do you like educate or, or like break or change their expectations without it being jarring or like off putting? So the answer to that is you have to be good. Like if you want to be different, if you want to serve what's not traditional Italian food, and people, yeah, people come in all the time. They don't understand any of the words. They don't understand this restaurant. Like, what is this place? But they've already made a reservation. They've already heard good things about it. So they come, and maybe at the beginning, they're like a little bit standoffish. They don't understand it. But you have two things at your advantage. One, alcohol, which will probably relax them over the course of their stay. And two, um, if it's good. If it's good, they're going to be like, wow, I never would have ordered that dish, but it was really tasty. I had a new experience. But if you're not good, then you're just letting them down. I have an expectation they've already had. They're like, oh, well, I don't really like cod. Well, have you, how have you cooked cod before? Like, who's made you the cod? Where's the cod from? Is it 
did you get good quality fish? Like maybe you just don't like it. I respect that. But maybe you haven't had a good version of it. And so it's like the only way to convince someone of something differently than they already know is you have to be good enough that it's a good experience for them. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And, but so, so here's the trick though. So they had a good experience, right? And now you've changed their expectations the second time they come. Yeah. And obviously no restaurant thrives on the back of one-time customers. Correct. So how do you then like, it's this weird paradox. It's like everybody wants to exceed expectations of what they're doing. But as soon as you do, with one individual or group of people, the next moment, their expectations have now changed. Like you kind of set the bar ever higher. And so an example I like to use is I was at a, a Boston hotel recently. There's a valet service. And on their ticket, they say, call ahead, car is ready in 30 minutes. You call them, they say, car is ready in 10, come down in 10. And then you come down in five and the car is right there. And it's like, wow, from 30 to 10 to five. But now the problem is the next time, I'm not thinking 30 or even 10, even if they say it, I'm thinking five. And so it's like, that's, you can't just like have the car ready instantly. So there's eventually this like bar you push ever higher and you like literally can't get over with that one thing. So then you have to start finding like other experiential ways to exceed expectations. Like, yeah, we can only deliver it in so many minutes, but here's a cookie while you wait or whatever. Um, So I'm curious like what that analogy would look like in your world. If somebody is wowed, they come back eventually if you serve the same dish or it all feels the same, they'll be like, that place has gotten stale. So how, how do you avoid that? Okay. So there's a couple of things. One, you to answer the, the beginning of it is like, you need to be consistent, right? Across all your, all your dishes, but also just a consistent with the experience. So to take your valet service and bring it into the restaurant service, we have risotto and it says on the menu, it takes 25 minutes because we cook it to order, right? So let's say you are having dinner and you order a risotto and you've been there for 15 minutes and there's a family emergency and you look at your server and you say, I have to leave and you leave and someone else walks in the door and they order that same risotto. And now I still have your risotto. It's been cooking and you cancel it. Someone else orders at the same time. Now it's, it's going to be on the table in 10 minutes, right? And they order that risotto, the same one that you were going to eat. I would not give them your risotto because changes the expectation of, well, I can get a risotto there in 10 minutes. And then they're going to come back with a group of people and be like, hey, we're in a rush. Can we get, we got a risotto last time in 10 minutes. Is that possible? You know, it's like, no, it's not possible. Um, So if the car was downstairs after 30 minutes, every single time, you would just come out, you would be like, this is perfect. This is good. It's a good business. They're doing what they say they are going to do. I give them 30 minutes. It's there in 30 minutes. I'm a happy customer. I'm going to continue to call them 30 minutes ahead of time because that's the expectation that we've all created around it. When they start to slip on the other end of that and it becomes 40 minutes or 45 minutes, now they're not following through on their promise. So now you're underwhelmed and you're like, you know what, this is stupid. I'd rather just park my car somewhere else where I know I can get access to it whenever I want because whatever. So sorry, that's a long way to say. No, that makes so much sense. It's like the first step is you just have to meet expectations in a recurring fashion. Yeah, exactly. And that's part one. And then to avoid it from becoming stale, then yeah, you have to evolve within those expectations. So like risotto is always going to take 25 minutes, but the flavors of a risotto are going to change. And I think the way to do that is as a creative person, you're just always evolving, hopefully. And so hopefully there's just evolution to your mindset, which is which creates an evolution in your work. That's not really something that you plan for. Um, I do have a rule that I don't make the same dish twice. So like right now, we're going into our fourth year of SRV and there's been some dishes that have been huge hits, especially a lot of the stuff that's on the opening menu, which is a whole other topic of conversation because that goes into like sophomore slump type mentality. Um, I think that it's easier to create an opening menu that's a home run or create like your first album. And everyone's like, oh, well, why... Why is there a sophomore slump? It's because the first album you wrote was like, you were in high school, you were in a high school band, you were making music, you went to college, you were making music, someone discovered you, you're 26, you have 12 years of music that you've been making. And all of a sudden you make it big on that music. And then all of a sudden someone's like, hey, I need another album for you in 18 months. And you're like, shit, like this music was so good because I've tweaked it for the past 12 years. So. <laughs> you you are describing exactly my life right now because I wrote this book on the back of Break the Wheel. I wrote that on the back of like two and a half years of running my podcast. So like telling all these stories and trying to make sense of those stories with like narration. Then like two and a half years of writing a weekly newsletter 
And also any other random article I wrote for other blogs or trade publications, the speeches I was giving there, I just had like all this stuff and it all went to, and arguably it's like those two and a half years and my entire life that came before it. Right. And that all, I I, I like, I somehow squeezed all that into a a book or the best stuff. Hopefully. And now it's like, I loved writing a book. Also, it's part of my sort of career path now. So, so I got to write the next one. I'm not going to give myself 30 more years to yeah. write the first book, the second book. So holy crap, yeah. do I have to like, I have to manufacture something? Like what the hell? So I, making sense of that to me is such a challenge. I mean, and there's like, there are like, there's you, this topic of conversation that you have is like so broad because there is like manufactured creativity, which is really what we're talking about. Like really what we're talking about is creativity on a timeline. You know, like I have to open every day at five o'clock. I have to change the menu between spring and summer because the ingredients change. And there are misses in those in that, but I have to be smart enough to be like, okay, I mean, I've put a dish on the menu that's only lived on the menu for 10 days and I've pulled it and swapped it out for something else, you know, like, um, and it's, it's never bad food. It's just, it's just not, it doesn't hit that expectation. Like we talked about where someone is uncomfortable with it and they order it and it has to blow them away. And if it doesn't, um, it's hard to keep it on the menu because now you're already putting someone outside their comfort zone. And they can't have a mediocre experience. Yeah. With that, you know? Um, but yeah, the sophomore slump is such a real thing. I tell people when people are like, what, what advice do you have for opening a restaurant? My, my first answer is write the second menu. Write the first menu and write the second menu. Because if you don't write the second menu, you're just going to be in that situation, you know, like you're, you and I were just talking about. And that takes – and then there's all these new – once you open the doors to the restaurant, now you're serving customers. So that the three months or four months that is a season, you lose all of that to not creativity to making sure staffing is still there, making sure everyone understands your vision. You know, like it's all like the nuts and bolts. Um, there is no creative force in the first three months. Maybe even the first year of a restaurant, you're behind You're behind on like the day-to-day creativity. It's just not there. It's, it's all about execution. Um, and then you have to get back into that like creative evolution again after that. Right. Right. More than your opening menu because you have the time now and you have the thought now. So do more. So I want to go into the menu writing process because I think that's like the perfect metaphor for everybody. Everyone knows what a menu is. Everyone's experienced a menu. And I want to really understand the process and the parts and pieces and the way you think about it. Um, but before we talk about writing the menu, I'm curious, like as you're p- approaching the first menu or just in general and writing any menu, I think we always have. So I, I talked to this guy who writes a daily short story called uh, a small fiction. It's like on Twitter and Instagram. It's genius. It's like all compact, it's like less than 140 characters, but there's like so many clever things he does to like continually do this once a day. He writes a fictional story in 140 characters or less. And we taught, we uncovered this idea that like when we do a creative task on repeat, there's something like called an anchor that we have, which is like for James of a small fiction, the anchor was like 140 characters. Yeah. The, the anchor was uh, like a genre, like sci-fi or creepy content. Um, the anchor was the time that he has. So like, these are like constraints and you're always changing constraints and you're always evolving them. And some are more important than others. Like he always wants it to be fiction. Um, so that's like a giant anchor, so to speak. But then off of these anchors, you have something we talked about called tethers, which is like, okay, I can experiment in all directions as long as I don't lose sight of and unhook completely from this anchor. So like SRV is a good example. It's like the concept of the restaurant is arguably like the highest level, most like heaviest anchor. It's like, we're yeah. never really going to break from the concept because it's so embedded in what we do. So like, you're not going to have, I don't know start serving just pure Japanese sushi tomorrow. Definitely. Uh, right? Like, so that's, a, cause that's a crazy ass stunt and that's where people start to lose themselves. That's fabricated creativity. Exactly. So when you're writing a menu, what's in your head as like, okay, these are my anchors aside from the SRV concept. So everyone writes menus differently. And we even, it's funny cause we have brought some of our managers into the creative process with us now, which is a whole nother challenge we kind of all approach it from different ways. But what I tell people and the way that I do it is the only anchor I keep is the SRV brand. And then I don't, I don't limit myself in the beginning and I just start writing ideas. You know, like obviously the, I guess another anchor is like something has to be a chiquetti, which is like one or two bites. Something has to be a plate. Something has to be a pasta. Something has to be a risotto. So I don't just write like all pasta dishes, you know, but I don't think it through as far as like, 
the logistics because what's the pickup time? What's this? What's that? Um, how many fish dishes do I have? How many meat dishes do I have? You know, like all that stuff before the menu gets finalized, you have to think about how many fish dishes do you have? How many meat dishes do you have? How many vegetable dishes do you have? How many dishes do you have that could be or are vegan? How many dishes do you have that are gluten-free? Just because if you don't have anything gluten-free on your menu and someone comes in and they're gluten-free, you've, you're already setting the system up for failure because you're going to have to cook that person food. So you're just making it harder for yourself to come up with something right then and there versus being like, I've already built this to be delicious and it also is gluten-free. You know what I'm saying? So we look at all those kind of things. But my, my first thing is to just just think and write and read and maybe go out to other restaurants or look at look at other menus and read read books or or maybe just cook at home. Just kind of like that freedom of cooking where you're not cooking for purpose. You're just cooking because you need to eat something and, and you want to make something nice for dinner on like a Sunday. And then you kind of evolve that into – and then eventually you have like a menu planning meeting where everyone sits down and starts to say, here's my – ideas that have nothing that have I have no other thoughts about like fish versus meat versus whatever. These are just all my ideas. And then you put all the ideas in the ring and then we say, okay, we need two fish dishes on this menu. What are the two fish dishes that we're most proud about now that everybody throw has thrown out their like their fish dish? And then we go from there. And then we whittle it down and then we recipe test it and taste it. And then we continue to evolve it from there. So it sort of goes from like there's the theory of it to then the testing of it to then like the proving out perhaps of it. Mm-hmm. Like, like how do you determine once the team tastes it, obviously like the team has taste, like creative taste, literal taste, the palate, yeah. they have experience. They're not the customer though. Like obviously there's some overlap, but they're not the exact, cause they have, they have like the burden of knowledge. Yeah. So how do you determine, okay, we like this fish dish we're going to it does that become a special does it go right onto the menu and if like how do you determine this is now just on the menu ongoing um we just put it i mean we can we some we can special it but usually we just put it on the menu i mean once like i've tasted it kevin's tasted it all the sous chefs have tasted it maybe the maybe the managers in the front of the house have tasted it and then we just go for it like if it, there is a burden of knowledge but there's also like you know you got to trust yourself a little bit you know you can't if you're in I'm not saying we're artists, but like if you are an artist and you paint a picture, you don't like do half the picture and then walk down the street and say, how does everyone feel about this picture so far? You know what I mean? <laughs> which is funny because um, coming from my world of marketing, who, which is now hiring all these creative people like, you know, myself, like podcasters and writers and designers, like there's just more of like a media lens over marketing, like create cool content that just like stands alone because it's enter- entertaining or educational. Those people are like, yeah, we have taste. Like we know this is going to work. The marketers are like, hmm, well let's maybe workshop this. Let's have a focus group of it. It's like, come on. I, I think that, so I'm like a really interesting person because I come from a very numbers focused background and I studied business and I love finance and I love accounting, but I'm in a business of cool. Like that's what I'm in the business of. Like I'm in the business of celebration and I'm the, I'm the guy that when we have the partner meetings, I bring all the data to the table, but I've also learned that you have to know when, I say, hey guys, this is what the data is showing us. But if we want to throw a party that's going to make no money, let's throw that party because we're going to have an epic party and people are going to have an epic time and they're going to be talking about it for a year, which is going to give us a year of people coming back in the door because they just love the space so much or the place so much. Like there is a positive to it, but you can't quantify that beforehand. And it might, and the data that you have might not justify that. So you just got to make sure that you don't try to be so cool that you bankrupted at the same time, like the fire festival. That's <laughs> <laughs> such a good example. It's such a weird place. It's like, and that's where you have to be able to willing to step out on the ledge a little bit, but doing it only in ways, not doing it so often that you tank the business. You know, I can't throw a party every night. You know, that wouldn't work like a free party. I can't just do that. It'd be super fun, but it's about being strategic in those like moments where you're going to step outside the box. So it's like marketing's not wrong, but you know, sometimes the data doesn't really make sense. Right. It, well, so when you, when a dish is selling, how, how and it, it has been proven in the past, like, are there instances you've experienced where like what was once really popular went away? Like, and what do you do in those instances? Um, we don't, we keep, we don't, we only keep two dishes on the menu all the time or three dishes. Technically the tiramisu for dessert 
the meatballs for the chiquetti and the baklava manticato. We've made a decision that we're willing to change everything else on the menu for what exactly what we're talking about to keep it interesting to people. Okay, so why so why those three dishes? Why are they persistent? And then why let everything else be up for grabs? So the baklava manticato is a super classic thing that you would get in every baklava in Venice. Like everywhere you go in Venice is going to have it. So we just feel like we need to have it. And it's also delicious. But it's just like it stays true to our original core concept of who we are. And the meatball is also super common in Venice. So it's part of the it's part of our core concept. But also it's such a thing that's celebrated in America that it kind of plays into a sense of place. You know, people are always going to order the meatballs. It's the number one selling thing on the, on the chiquetti menu since the day we opened, you know? Um, so it's just an anchor for us as far as that. And the tiramisu tiramisu is in every North end restaurant. Um, it's in every restaurant, probably it's Italian in, in the United States and it's from Venice. So it's like perfect. It's like people don't know it's from Venice. You know, they just know it's Italian, but they don't know it's from Venice. So you have this educational moment where you're like, you know, that dessert that you've had so many times, it's actually from Venice and that's what we're celebrating here. And also you're super comfortable with it because it's not outside the box. So you're going to order it. So it serves a, a financial benefit for us, but it also plays direct, like strongly into our core concept of being a great Venetian restaurant. And we try to make a version that's better than you would get anywhere. And there's, and there's definitely some tweaks to them as well. So they're not just straightforward all the time. Yeah. Well, what if there's like a fourth dish, maybe look at a pasta dish. I don't know. I think like, I've had the squid ink pasta there. Mm-hmm. What if, that just catches fire. Like it's selling like crazy. You have good margin on it. People are really excited about it. They're talking about it. it you, you, your hunch is that like, this is what brings people in and people really love it. Like why not sort of set it and forget it? I guess, I guess what I'm really asking is like, why wouldn't you say the goal of a menu is to find as many dishes as possible that stay on the menu forever? So I think there's two things. Well, one we do have another dish that's like that, actually. That's called the Tyrene. It's um, every spring we put it on the menu. And we could have it all year long if we really wanted to. We choose not to because it doesn't stand by our values of like seasonally inspired food. And also, it's an anchor, but it's only there once a year. So it becomes something that's interesting, again, because you're waiting for it. You know, every regular talks about it all year long. I had someone message. We have a regular that I tell them the day it goes on the menu and they put it in their personal calendar and make sure that they're here the first day it goes on the menu in the spring. Um, so I think that if you have something like that, a way to keep it from not being stale is to not make it something that you can have all the time, but it's something that you can always come back for. It's like a vacation. You know, you go to the same beach house for a week every year and you go to the same ice cream stand. If you eat at that ice cream stand every night, all year long, maybe it's not that special, but for the one week a year that you go to, the beach in Rhode Island and you, you walk down and get that ice cream cone, it means something, you know? Um, so I think that's a way to be, have something that doesn't, that sticks around. That's not stale. But other than that, we change everything. Um, because we do want people to eat here regularly and we want them to be part of the journey with us. And it's a good evolution for us as professionals. But I do think there's a downfall when you can be too egotistical, when you could change things too frequently or, or too far beyond people's understanding where you've now like started to alienate people and then you start to lose your, your customer base. How do you, have you found any way to center yourself to, to find that balance? Cause it is a delicate line. We're walking. Like if, when I write the book, I don't want to say like everything's up for debate at all times, even though in a way it is like, just, just pull random stunts like out of your ass and change everything all the time. Like obviously like you want an identity, you want things to work. Like, so is there, I know this is kind of a messy question, but like, is there anything you found to like, come back to center, have a level head and be like, okay, this is the right line to walk here. Well, I get the benefit of the seasons. You know what I'm saying? Like just built into my industry. I, I, I get to force myself to change it and the customers understand it. Cause it's like, Hey, I know you really love this dish, but it's now summertime and we're going to, we're going to take this dish off the menu because it's built around, you know, winter squash. You know what I'm saying? Like that doesn't, ex- that doesn't exist right now. So I kind of yeah. have that as a, as a, cop out but i do have to say when i was in new york i have i worked for a chef at a really high-end restaurant and it's like one of those restaurants that you go to most people probably go to eat there once in their lifetime you know and he said that he didn't change they didn't change we didn't change the menu a lot and the focus in the kitchen there was more about 
technique and getting really good at it so that you could perfect it. And it was less about creativity. It was more about just like every day being on point. But he once told me, he's like, if I change this whole menu all the time, it would be for my ego because I know that that pasta with bolognese is perfect. And if, if everyone only eats it once in their life, then I'm only changing it for me because it's a perfect experience every time they have it. But there's very few things that are like that, especially in like what we're talking about, like media or restaurants that are not that are everyday restaurants, you know, where you're where you're in it and consuming it more than once. Um, but like as far as like a Ferrari goes, like, you know, you and I might get in a let's say get in a Ferrari once and that's the we're going to remember that one Ferrari experience. So the little change they make to the stick shift is not going to really affect our life because we just know that one time we drove in that Ferrari, you know? Yeah, yeah. I want to zoom back into the crafting of a menu. So you have all these like, you have the the, the big anchor, let's say, which is the SRV brand. Then you have all these smaller things, fish dish, gluten-free, all that stuff. Um, then you start testing it. You have to start sampling it. So you, you create a menu. The menu's working. You mentioned writing the second menu. What's that process like? Well, no, just saying like writing like the menu after the menu that you already have, you know? Right. So how do you go from menu one to menu two? Is it just a matter of like, we've now changed enough dishes that we seem to have a refreshed menu or is it like you're literally sitting down with a blank canvas mentality and you're like what could a different menu be here yeah so what i what i personally do again everyone on my team is creative differently but what i put like we're doing a menu change today and we're doing a menu change two weeks from now um so we change the menu in sections but we change but this is our spring change right now so what i do is i change the menu today i spend the next week making sure that all my sous chefs and all my managers understand the vision of all the dishes that we change and that it's consistently being produced multiple times over the course of the next week or two weeks. Once I'm confident that they can do it the way that I want it, then I, I immediately disconnect personally from that menu. As long as it's being recreated at a, at a high level the whole time and guests are still experiencing the creativity that we came up with, I immediately move on and start writing my summer menu. And as the ideas roll in, I'll just start writing ideas down. Um, but I've already dis I've already disconnected myself from the spring, which is the moment that we're in right now. And then we'll start having menu meetings probably in six weeks. And then we'll get ready for like a July change or something like that. And, we'll, and we pick dates. We have deadlines. Um, and then everyone has to bring their ideas on this day. And then we whittle it down. And then everyone has to start sampling dishes by this day. I, I'd love to just get your thoughts. You're well-educated, well-spoken. You have a business mind. You like accounting. You're also in like this creative field. Um, so I think you could provide some really good insights in, in, in addition to the story stuff you shared. So like, I'm trying to crack this nut that like, is there a process that we can put in place? And I don't know, I'm on the hunt for one, but maybe we can just riff on this. Like, I want to find some semblance of a framework or a process or some like mental heuristics that I can share with people. That's like, you know, like you're doing the same work all the time. Put this in place so you can constantly learn how to refresh the work. Like why... First question, why do you think people don't do that? Like, why do you think the tendency is to find what works and beat it to death? Because I think that, I think that, so my business partner, one of my business partners, not Kevin, the other creative, but our business partner is kind of like that to some degree. There is safety in that, you know, there's safety in saying like, let's just throw like random numbers out there. I'm doing a million dollars a year in sales. And okay, I'm getting stale, but at what rate am I getting stale at? And then, and where's my cash flow at? You know, like there's some business owners that, especially like in a restaurant, for instance, where you have a lease on it, they're like, okay, well, I have like five years until I get like super stale, and then I'm going to be stale at a rate of 2% loss of revenue a year until my lease is up. But I have already made all my money back and I'm already good in cash flow. So I'm just going to ride out, ride this out. You know, I don't know if that makes any sense, but yeah, it's almost like people, people see the signs of stagnation. I think there's like three stages. There's or four. So first stage is like, we did something that worked. It popped, right? And you get a spike in the numbers or a spike in the emotional response, but you, you get a spike. And then what happens is you experience a drop off. So you start to get diminishing returns on whatever that thing was. Could be a dish, could be a concept, whatever. Um, so you get a spike, then a drop off, then, then you stagnate where it's like, okay, now this has become super predictable. And there's a risk factor involved in like breaking from what's predictable. And like we know that we could do better, but the journey to get to better might actually go the opposite direction. 
Yeah. So like, let's just stick with the predictable little stagnant plateau here. It's like the same thing. Then the fourth stage, um, I call it the crapping point because it's like it, it craps out on you. It's like, oh, shit, everyone is doing this. And now we're sunk or like, oh, wow, we really didn't act before it was too late. And we need to like now back to manufacturing creativity. We need to we need to basically fabricate the next spike. So like I'd liken this to a team of marketers that like produced a viral video and now they think their job is to like produce hits to produce viral videos and everyone cares about the spike instead of the slope of the whole line the trajectory of progress to me matters more than any spike or decline or whatever so what I'm trying to tell people is like you get to the stagnation part and you stay there and that's actually hurting you because then you act after it's too late what I'm saying is like you actually got to change what's working while it's still working and I think that's a radical idea for some people does does that make sense yeah, no, there's, um, okay, so I think that it's more calculated. I think that the stages are spot on, but I think it's just the fear of making that, like trying to create again. And like what I was trying to say before is like, it's almost like calculated where it's like, I'm not going to go out of business tomorrow if I don't change anything, but I'm going the wrong direction, but I'm going the wrong direction at a steady enough state that I'm still, I still have my house and I still, you know, it's like if I could just slide at this rate long enough like i'm still gonna be able to retire you know what i'm saying it's like kind of sad when you think about it but that's truly what i think it is it's like a fear of changing the whole system up because you think that you're gonna put yourself out of business or be or whatever this is for smaller businesses more so i'm thinking than like big businesses that can take more risks but um that definitely is like the psychological elevate uh, but like every business school teaches you know against that mentality it's just hard to do it when it's when it's emotionally tied to you. Right. Yeah. You know, it's like watching someone in a bad relationship and you're like, get out of that relationship. It's like, you're not the one in the real, you don't have any of the feelings. You're just like, dude, that's, it's pretty obvious that that's a bad relationship. <laughs> yeah. And people can't see it if they're too yeah, close people to can't it. See it. It's the same thing. It's like, it's your business. Yeah. It's like hard to say, Oh, well. And so the, the only way that I think it's just a mentality you have to have is that you have to be constantly evolving. There's a woman who passed away who ran Brennan's, restaurant in new orleans like a famous restaurant group she was part of like commander's palace and all this stuff and her saying her corporate saying for like the culture of her company was if it's not broken fix it anyways and that's what you're talking about yeah yeah exactly um so okay so i think there's three causes that prevent us from reinventing our work and and keeping it refreshed and i think it's there's the self you you get complacent yep there's the market, which is like others' expectations have changed. Like you set the bar higher for yourself. So people coming back expect something even better this time, or just the market in general has caught up to what you were doing. Then there's the thing we just talked about, which is like the predictability. So it's like, there's a risk factor in changing, even though we know what we're doing is kind of average, it's still working enough. It's good enough. Let's not change. So I'm curious, like to talk to the last thing I want to ask you is about the first two. So in terms of yourself, are there signs you've noticed in yourself or your team that say, you know what, we, we got to do something a little bit different here because we're starting to lose interest, starting to get complacent? How do you spot that? Um, some of that is just the life cycle of like employment too. Like I don't, you know, not everyone's going to work in my, is going to work as a line cook for 20 years. You know, it's like, some of it is I have a new cook who's, who has no experience and it's like, I'm going to teach you everything I've taught the last person and it's going to be new and exciting for you. And then you're going to work through this system of going on all these different stations and I'm going to be evolving as a chef and you're going to be evolving as a cook at the same time. And it's exciting for them, but I get complacent in that. Like, honestly, I've hired more managers because I've done that for so long where it's like, I need a new challenge. So I kind of, I guess one way to fill that void is by making it a new experience for somebody else in your organization. You know what uh, I mean? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, do, what what do you feel like? What's going through your head, or what what do you what are your emotions when you you personally start to feel complacent? Like what what happens to you when you start to sense that? Um, I make I personally don't like that feeling. Um, so then I make changes. I I want to make the menu either more exciting. I, I, I create myself like a new creative outlet. I don't know how to, to, to maybe I'm complacent because, okay. So like maybe for instance, the menu is very simple right now because the cooks are very inexperienced. That's another thing I have to deal with when I write menus is like how involved, how 
involved can the dish be, right? So maybe I'm like, okay, this menu is too simple. It's not exciting enough for me. It's not exciting enough for the cooks. It's not exciting enough for a guest. So if I find myself in that rut, I try to do the exact opposite of that, which sometimes is bad because then all of a sudden you create this like really in-depth menu. But it, at least, but but I but we have conversations like Kevin and I will be like, listen, this menu is way more involved than the last menu, but it's gonna we're gonna start pushing people now because everyone's comfortable. Everyone's done this menu for the last six months and they're all more competent cooks. So now we're going to like really push them and dig in a little bit with the guests. It's a little bit harder because like you're saying it is, it's hard. There's only so many different ways I could change the experience. Um, and we've had that conversation a lot over the last couple of years of like, what's next, what's next. And part of it is just being really good at what we do. Part of the evolution is going to be us having to do another restaurant. That's a, that's a, um, a broadening of our brand. And that people could say, listen, we know SRV is great and we're still going to go there. And we're kind of reeled back into this, their whole group because they opened a new place that we're really excited about. And, oh, this was really good. We haven't been to SRV in a while. Let's go back there. You know, like Interesting. Yeah, so time, just time passing can help something feel fresh. Yeah, well, time passing and also – but we have to be willing to, re, to bring something creatively back into the market that reminds people. It's like I relate restaurants to music albums. You know, it's like SRV is great and hopefully people listen to it for a really long time. But when your new, when your favorite brand after five years releases a new album, you're more like you and you kind of get into it. You're also more likely to listen to the last album because you're like, oh man, I haven't listened to them in so long. You like written them off, you know? And then you're like, but this is my favorite band. Like I haven't listened to this song in a while. And the next thing you know, you're on the Spotify and you're listening to both albums and straight through. Um, maybe an album that you haven't had as part of your day to day in, you know, like I said, three or four years because you played it out in the beginning. So kind of from my business, particularly creating a new concept and keeping people energized will continue to feed off, continue to feed all the other things that I have in the past because it just kind of brings me back into the fold a little bit. We are planning some exciting changes to the show that we're not quite ready to announce, but we will very soon in the next few weeks. So stay tuned for that. And I'll talk to you on the next episode of the show. See ya.